welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher. Tonight, I'm welcoming two guests. I have with me Zelia Edgar and Steve Ward, and the three of us are going to celebrate John Keel's birthday a little bit early by about two days. Actually, we're recording it a, a good, you know, almost whole month beforehand, but whatever. We'll pretend. Um, and uh, we're going to talk all about Keel, but we're also going to talk about his one of his main aphorisms that everybody knows, which is belief is the enemy and what that means to us. So hello, guys. Uh, hello. Great to be here. Hello. Thank you so much for having us both on the show. Of course, I absolutely love doing shows with Steve. Um, we're two parishioners of the Church of John Keel, so this is going to be a lot of fun. And, and you can you can uh, uh, watch us because uh, I think when Zelia and I first did some shows together, we had to be careful because we would really get off into the weeds of Keelianisms, and you know, we it, it, there's no closed captioning on the or you know explain on any subtext on on the radio. So uh, you, if we get too too out there. I'll try to reel you in, but I'm just as bad about going off on tangents as as you two. So it it's probably not going to matter. It's probably going to just be wild and woolly. But let's try to start with belief is the enemy. Um, I'm going to start with Zelia. What do you? What does that mean to you? And how do how do you uh, use that in your? ways of, of investigating and researching? Well, belief is the enemy is absolutely one of my favorite Keel quotes. And I feel like it's a great balance to the flip side of a lot of investigation, which is kind of summed up in Mulder's, I want to believe. Um, so in Keel's case, however, for me, it's almost kind of like, um, kind of like a warning is sort of how I take it. And that warning for me, at least has two definite parts. And on the one part, um, it's just kind of a reminder that as soon as you stake your claim and you say, okay, I've looked at the evidence, this is what I think it is. And as soon as that becomes the answer and the working belief for you, you're going to naturally gravitate towards trying to support that just, you know, even subconsciously. So that's kind of one half of how I take it as a warning. The other half um, kind of goes in line with the concept that it seems as though the phenomenon is almost aware of our belief systems and kind of utilizes that in a very trickster-esque way. Um, against the act of investigation of it. Um, so for me, it's definitely kind of a two-part warning. And I know that, you know, when I go through and I look at all of these weird cases, because of course, I really love the more high strangeness stuff. And I am very fond of a lot of the theories that are kind of the fringe of the fringe. Um, however, when I go through them, I really try and keep, you know, an open mind and sort of tread the boundaries. Because in my opinion, you know, the one belief I do have is that there's probably more than one right answer when you're dealing with anything in the paranormal. And so you can't really um, disregard anything. The minute you do that is the minute you're kind of sunk. So hope that wasn't too rambling of an answer. Nope. Nope. It was it was succinct and to the point. And you brought up, I want to believe, which is also part of belief is the enemy, really. Yeah. It's kind of like an Ouroboros a little bit. You know? Yep. Yep. What about you, Steve? Well, I think uh, Keel uh, did a lot with the idea of paranormal mimicry and the reflective factor. And he would talk about the, the historical manifestations of these things throughout the ages, the meandering lights of ages past, uh, 
uh, dragon tracks. Uh, they were called fairy lights sometimes. And there was even a time period where people believed that the strange lights going through the sky were witches carrying their lanterns, going <laughs> traveling on brooms. And uh, uh, and then, of course, the the context changes. Uh, and, and even when we started seeing seeing objects that seemed to be more solid, like the uh, the majestic airships, eighteen ninety seven, and so forth, sometimes they would just see a light moving through the sky, and they assumed it was those airships. The same with the ghost flyers and so forth. Sometimes they would see a solid uh, plane or whatever, and there, there may have been. I mean, some of these things, uh, uh, as Ilya said, there is. Uh, that's one of the few things that I can say too is that there's more than one answer to some of these basic ideas of cryptids, UFOs, uh, psychic phenomena, and so forth. So there, there is a, and he talked a lot about how the, the technology or what appeared to be technology was just always a little bit ahead of where we were. The, the airships were, you know, we, we didn't really have zeppelins or, or that kind of thing that far advanced at that time. Uh, and the uh, and even some of the uh, I've always been been uh, uh, mystified and intrigued by the the ghost flyers. They would get these these majestic giant planes would come out of the north of Sweden, with with no place to land or take off, with eight propellers, four propellers on each wing. These giant and they would they would shine these searchlights down in these little tiny villages way up north. What the heck is that all about? Maybe they were real physical craft. I don't know. But uh, again, uh, you know, a, 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 a airplane was not unusual. But of that, uh, that, that, type, that type of technology, that size, and coming from seeming nowhere, going to nowhere, uh, was, well, again, all these things were uh, ahead of our, uh, our experience at that time. The Foo Fighters. Uh, when the Foo Fighters came out uh, uh, following planes in World War II, everybody thought it was the other guy doing it. Right. So uh, it's uh, there is there's really something to that uh, that really needs to be looked at. Where uh, there, there's something, and that that gets we can get further into that. That that gets into the you know monsters from the id and so forth. Are these things uh, projections of the collective unconscious in some cases? Uh, and, uh, you know, the, I, I was going to bring up something at, at least later on when, when I do, uh, shows sometimes and I'm trying to explain Keel and trying to do it to somebody that hasn't, you know, experienced Keel, it's very, it's, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm doing a good job in, in talking about what an ultra terrestrial means and what the transmogrification of energy means, but that's something we can get into later. But that all kind of ties into belief is the enemy. He suggested that these 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 lights, when he was in the Mothman prophecies, that people that perhaps the only objectively real thing about it were these strange meandering lights, that people were being programmed, or perhaps these things were manifesting into something uh, a, a giant UFO that nobody else was seeing or a hairy biped walking through the woods. And uh, so, yeah, he was he was way ahead of his time in looking at what was going on. And I think I meandered even even better than Zelia just did. <laughs> it's, it's a competition, definitely. I'll, I'll judge by the end who meandered better. <laughs> <laughs> who went farther? <laughs> in, in my case, I, I've... I tried when I first 
started working on the idea of the podcast, I tried taking belief is the enemy to heart and really looking at phenomena that I experienced and people around me experienced. And when I would write it down, I would try to write down exactly what was seen, felt, heard, smelled, whatever, and not put a quantifier to anything and not try to explain it in any way or postulate what it could be, not to even give it a name. Do you know how hard that is? <laughs> yes. That is so hard. That is so difficult. It, it actually started to make me kind of crazy because I was just like, you know, okay, when it's just the little lights that I see in the woods, that's not too hard. I can just call those little lights and just be done with. Call it that. That's good. But then if you see like humanoid forms with the lights, then okay, what's happening? And then you end up having no vocabulary to kind of be a placeholder for what it is that you're experiencing. And uh, it was around John Keel's birthday last year. I was talking with Greg Bishop and he said, you know, just think of it as a placeholder, you know, just, just pick a name for whatever the phenomena is that you are talking about, thinking about looking at and just, just give it a name. Even if you just make one up, just call it that. And, and move along because your brain is trying to put it in a box of some sort. And if you don't give it a, a name, your brain is going to sit there and get, you know, weird and start flailing around trying to find the name to put to it. And then Morgana was, you know, she was funny. Uh, she, she thought I was totally crazy for even trying it. Um, she was like, Ma, you know, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck. It's a duck. And I said, what if it's a shape-shifting duck? And she said, you know, sometimes I just want to smack you, even though you're my mom. I was just going to say, did she slap you? <laughs> She's like, you know. And I said, yeah, but, you know, what if it is a shape-shifting duck? And, and, and she was like, well, yeah, there's that. So in my case, I tried to be really, I guess, rigid about not believing, but you can't really quite go through life without something theoretically to kind of hold your ideas together or you're, you're just gonna be weird. It, it was a really interesting experience. I mostly still call them little lights though. I used to think they were fairy lights, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're not really, I don't know what they are, but huh. that's if, if the other what... thing. Go ahead. If somebody says they know exactly what something is, <laughs> oh yeah, they probably don't. So that's why I'm very careful to say I don't know. There's another aspect to this too. Remember, in the beginning of the Mothman prophecies, there's this great opening where this uh, this stranger, all dressed in black, uh, yes. comes to the door and, and is knocking on the door, and the couple uh, answers. Uh, and of course, it's John Keel catching a whale of a cold, as he said. And the thing is, they believed that it was some kind of an omen or something uh, like the devil, a manifestation of the devil or whatever. So they didn't, their belief system didn't change anything, but it clouded what the reality was at the time. Mm -hmm. And another thing, you know, I always thought that that was a literary device that Keel used. 
which would have been fine. But it turns out that that really uh, that really did happen. That these people that he knocked on the door of uh, did die on the bridge, and he uh, that's revealed in uh, one of the collections. Uh, oh, come on, the uh, Great Phonograph in the Sky. There's an in- yeah. interview he gives back there. Where uh, he he the the, the uh, interviewer asked him, it, it, "Was that a real case?" And he said, "Yes, because people uh, were got that story later on about the two people that had this mysterious stranger come to the door and they died on the bridge. And so it wasn't something that Keel fabricated. That really was a piece of folklore that was created from that tragedy and from a just a mundane event of the car breaking down." That that's another thing that you know what that points to is that humans create folklore like breathing. Yeah. We really do. You know, if and I love that opening too. That's that's one of my favorite parts of the book. And I do have a a recording of me reading that with, you know, Zach made some music to go behind it and uh the sounds of rain and thunder and all of that. And it's a really beautiful atmospheric piece of writing. Uh, when I was a kid, I, like Steve, assumed that it was a literary device. When I first read the book, I was like, oh, this is just a, you know, a thing, you know, that didn't really happen that way. But interestingly, my family members had heard that story before they read the book. That story had been even before he wrote the book had been circulating through West Virginia, that there was, that there was a man in black who had gone knocking on people's doors in the middle of the night during a storm. And that the people who actually opened the door for him were the ones who died on the bridge. The other people who didn't open the door didn't die. So that story had been told long ago and i heard that you know because i remember asking my saying to my dad this is a great opening and he said oh yeah that story was told after the after the bridge crashed he said you're too young to remember you know hearing any of that but it was you know it was it was told around where he worked so who knows how far it traveled but yeah humans make up make up folklore like anything it, it's just, and and it's part of the West Virginia storytelling tradition. You know, that's one of the things my family did when we got together is we told stories about, you know, people in our family, our neighbors, people could say we were gossips, but it was just as much just telling the funny things that happened to people around. So just, just very quickly, it, it uh, when you say that my, uh, my dad moved around a lot when, when, uh, he was a kid. He went to something like 22 different schools by the time he was in the 10th grade. But this, I don't know where the heck he was, somewhere in Michigan. And the uh, the kids in the area, they, they 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 had all kinds of folklore right there. And they, they said, look down that road there. You see those people crossing? They're robbers. They're, they're, they're you know, they're robbers. Well, they're just people crossing the road. And they, they also <laughs> heard a story about a Sandman. A guy that he, he was he was naked and he would move through the sand like some kind of creature or whatever, and uh, that was just a story that was told out of whole cloth, you know. So uh, yeah. I, I don't know if there really is a Sandman somewhere in Michigan, but uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's just a nat- natural part of the human experience, I guess. 
Yeah, kids have their own stories that they they tell in each each school, I think. They have little bits and pieces that they that they tell. It's it's just what humans do. Um, but yeah, so apparently because these people opened the door to a stranger, then they were that was an omen or it was a curse or whatever. But all they did was help out a stranger in need, which, you know, West Virginia is the Bible belt. And what does the Bible say? You should open your door to those who are in need. So kind of has a little bit of tension there. It's a really good piece of folklore, really. Yeah, it's amazing how it kind of, even though, you know, you can trace how this was simply a mundane occurrence, the fact remains that that couple, among how many others, did die on the bridge. And you have this kind of almost folkloric patterning, you know, occurring mm -hmm. with something that we can absolutely pin down as non-anomalous. It's just John Keel, you know. It's just kind of interesting, you know, if you look at it from that angle as well. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been better if he had Mary with him. I know, right? Because <laughs> uh, yes. then it wouldn't have been the devil. It would have been, <laughs> you know, oh, that's Mary Hire. Yeah. <laughs> and some guy, you know, yeah. <laughs> not Mary Hire with the devil, but it was early on in his investigations and he wasn't out running around with her at that point looking for stuff. He was he was coming on his own. So and, and back in those days, uh, uh, you know, sometimes men would wear the uh, wear their suits all the time with the tie and all that, even out oh, yeah. UFO watching, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's. People, people dressed nicely back then. And in that area, uh, you know, in the farm areas of, you know, a dude in, in dress shoes was weird. Very weird. And even when they worked in the factories, they would, uh, uh, they put their work clothes on, but their, their suit and, and shirt and tie would be in the locker and they would put that on before they would go home. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's, you have to, I really like having to think about what it was like when he was investigating and how different everything was. You know, one of the things that is talked about by Mary Heyer is what the men in black who came to speak to her looked like. They were dark skinned. They were swarthy. They were short, kind of, she says, oriental, I would say Asian, uh, because, you know, Oriental is a carpet, Asian is a person. Um, but back then, there was no differentiation. It was not considered insulting to say Oriental. Um, so, I, you know, I had somebody ask me once, well, you know, is that really, would that have been that noticeable? And I said, well, yeah, it 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 was that, that noticeable. That That is not a very diverse area. Of, of the country at that time. So somebody who looked different like that would stand out. Well, wasn't uh, Azealia, didn't uh, I remember Keel saying that he, uh, he, he, in his briefcase, he had uh, all kinds of different uh, photographs of different kinds yeah. of ethnicities. And the one that stood out that everybody said it looked like the men in black were Laplanders. Yes. Laplanders have kind of a swarthy appearance. They have a bit of a sort of an Asian countenance, perhaps. But but a lot of times they would say, 
Well, they looked kind of, well, again, they would say Oriental, Asian, but they weren't. But they knew somehow that they were not Japanese or Chinese or Korean. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, the I think probably what they were noticing was epicanthic folds in the eyelids. That would be my guess, because people in the Arctic Circle do have those, whether they're of Asian extraction or not. They do tend to have those. So, yeah, that's that's what I always figured it was. I also like how he had pictures of sandhill cranes and pulled that out. And everybody's like, no, it didn't <laughs> yes. look like that. That's not what it was. I'm sorry, the usual dude. suspects. <laughs> yes. Have you seen this bird? No, I have not. <laughs> And if I did, I would have known that that's what it was. No. <laughs> well, seriously. I mean, yeah. That's yeah, what we, ha uh, we had one land in Athens, like, I don't know, four years ago. And it was right by the road, like the busy uh, commercial district, right by East State Street, next to some trees. And it, it had an injured leg. Oh. And the, I, I recognized it immediately because yeah. I was, you know, because... I've seen them in zoos and also Mothman. And I looked at that and my kid was with me and Fox looked at it and said, that is not Mothman. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, how could anybody say that's a Mothman? <laughs> He's like, that doesn't look, if you saw it at night, it, it doesn't have glowing eyes. Yeah. It's got no. red patch on its head, but, but that's not the same. <laughs> Well, I, I, one of my favorite things, too, is the fact that there were so many varied descriptions of Mothman, you know, ranging yes. from something kind of creature-like to something man-like. Someone thought it was a guy in a fur coat or a long cape. It always makes me think of that Seinfeld episode, The Man in the Cape. But anyway, um, sometimes <laughs> it was just spinning lights. And so if you're going to tell me that there was a sandhill crane that was, you know, that uh, talented, that it can do all of these fantastic impersonations, you know, I would be after that sandhill crane. Let me tell you. Yeah. He clearly and, escaped from a circus. And yes. even robotic in some cases. Yeah. Uh, who was it? Uh, uh, <clears throat> Mrs. Uh, Thomas, was it, in the uh, Team T area toward the end of that year, uh, saw it walking very quickly like a, like a robot. And, uh, and Keel said he got some reports of it being close by where people were hearing something like a I don't know if it was an engine or a humming or something yeah. suggesting something mechanical. And so that's a, you know, what a paradox. And that's a, you know, that, that, I think that that's one of the things, one of the themes that I want to talk about a little bit tonight or bring up is uh, the way the, the critics, the, the skeptics, the, uh, the, the, the flesh and blood types, the non ultra terrestrial types, um, they will, uh, they will attack Keelians or people that look at, at things in that, that perspective, but they will, have you, have you noticed that sometimes they will misstate what we think or what we say? Mm -hmm. uh, they'll say things like, oh, they don't believe Bigfoot's real. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> that, that's not what we're, we're saying. We're saying that there's a high strangeness factor to this thing. It may not, a flesh and blood creature doesn't, it doesn't explain everything. You know what I mean? How they, they will uh, oh, yeah. miss, and it's been it's been going on forever. If you go back to uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky, Worlds in Collision, well, people have looked at his books and said, well, some of his stuff is still pretty far out. Uh, some might be accurate, 
but people like uh, Donald Menzel, who was the predecessor to Philip Klass, uh, a very not, not really a skeptic, but more of a cynic. <clears throat> Menzel viciously attacked uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky, but he misstated some of the things that he wrote about that he believed. So rather than taking issue, like, and that's what happens to to our our group, our gang, or whatever, or our perspective, sometimes we're attacked, and and some of the things that we are suggesting are misstated by the critics, and that's kind of frustrating. Yeah, that's that's fairly fairly normal standard operating procedure. Uh, you know, that's that's the uh, straw man argument. Make a straw man and argue with that. You know, mis misstate or misconstrue or twist what your opponent is saying in a debate and argue with what you say they're saying, not what they're actually saying. Uh, that happens a lot. And even when you have two people who are, you know, into the UFO uh, anomalies, but they they are on different sides of you know, somebody's ETH and somebody else's ultra terrestrial will say, and they will each do that to each other. They will argue with what they think the other person is saying rather than what the actual person is actually saying. Yeah. The taxonomy too just gets so difficult. And I think that, you know, like how you were discussing, you tried to view your own experiences without the use of, you know, labels effectively. It gets tricky, too, when it's like, because I have been asked so many times, you know, so you think Bigfoot is a UFO occupant or so you think that aliens are actually demons or you think poltergeist, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And it's tricky to be like, OK, I think that, you know, if we take Bigfoot is a UFO occupant as an example, I think that in certain cases, the UFO occupant and the Bigfoot are likely the same thing is not the same thing as saying Bigfoot is a UFO occupant. You know, yes. it just gets right. so tricky. And this, of course, too, is in the web of that doesn't exclude the possibility of actual UFOs, which doesn't exclude the possibility of actual Bigfoots, which doesn't, ex you know, just an exactly. ongoing web of just endless, uh, endless debates. And, and Zelia, that's so far ahead of where they're thinking. You know, it, it, it really gives them pause. Like, what do you mean they're part of the same manifestation? You know, because people want to, like like Barbara, you were saying, you, know, you see something, the mind wants to determine what it is, you know, based on our experiences. But uh, it, it, it's probably when we take uh, Stan Gordon's uh, reporting of the, in, in Silent Invasion, the, the Bigfoot and the UFO things happening in the same area. I always tell people it's, it's probably too simplistic to go A, B, C. Okay, it's a solid craft that cloaked itself somehow. It let the Bigfoots out to stretch their legs after that long trip from, you know, from wherever. Arthur. And it just doesn't, and I, I've used the term uh, that I need to develop more, but I, I call it sort of a paranormal diorama. We, we don't really know what it is, but it's almost like the whole thing is set up or projected and we, we may be not be able to find, figure out what it actually is by, by, by being just too one dimensional. Okay. Yeah. They came out of the craft. They, you know, uh, it just, none of it makes any sense, but uh, anyway, I started rambling again. I'm going to stop. <clears throat>
it's really okay if you ramble um <laughs> because what what you're basically what i i see you as saying is that what we're dealing with is something that's so complicated that we can't just say things like i believe in aliens you know that's the thing that people will ask do you believe in aliens well what do you mean by aliens <laughs> you know what a, yeah they think it's an they think it's just a simple question do you or do you not believe in aliens <laughs> well uh, yeah but i don't uh you know the the little gray guys i don't think are coming from another planet but i think they want us to think they're coming from another planet um <laughs> one of my all-time favorites was it was ivan sanderson in uninvited visitors who he started off a chapter and he said i have been asked endless times if i believe in ufos and i always uh resist the urge to say well i don't know i didn't know they did fly and then he went into this large-scale attack on the concept of UFO being strictly an object that is flying. When he's like, you know, we've got, we don't really know if it's an object. It seems more like a phenomenon or it seems almost like um, an event, you know. And of course, now we have the UAP, which I will say, yeah, it's a far more objective term. Do I think that it's really going to change how the field is viewed? Not at all. Um, no. And again, too, I don't think that, you know, I even have an issue with calling it uh, aerial because a lot of these things, the most interesting things happen at ground level. You know, right. where is that division there? So it, it is the taxonomy of this is one of the the great problems, you know. And so like you were even saying earlier with your own personal experiences, for me, it's like when you look at these old encounters, what I just do is I just take it at face value. You know, if Simonton said that they were Italians in a flying saucer, I will call them Italians in a flying saucer without ever believing it was Italians in a flying saucer. Right. Is but I they think had the trick of it. Tasteless assed pancakes. That's what they had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that poor, the... poor man. That poor man. I feel so bad for him all I these just, years later. You see the picture of him and he looks so stoic. You know, I mean, he yes. is like, again, being from Wisconsin, I see this sort of person, the stoic, just Wisconsin, you know, small town guy. And he's standing there holding, for all intents and purposes, a space pancake. And, I just and love here, that. And here he would not have actually, if they, they he said, if they offered him a, a ride in his, their spaceship, he wouldn't go because the food is so bad. Worse than just peanuts and Coke on, a, on an airplane. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, and the, you know, the, the thing about UFOs versus UAPs, I, I can see why the the military decided to go with UAP and are trying to to get yeah. serious researchers and journalists and the media and everybody to go with UAP now is because through how many what 50 60 years of pop culture UFO equals yep. extraterrestrial vehicle flying about yep. it, it, it which is not what it it is you know so no. you don't have to you have to, there's all of this conception in people's minds. The extraterrestrial hypothesis has become so ingrained in our yeah. psyches from pop culture that UFO has no meaning to most people other than a spaceship of some sort. Exactly. They, they, unidentified flying object. There's also the, the you know, lots of things happen at ground level and lots of things happen at water level or just yes. below water 
or coming out of water. So it's not just flying. So. I, I know I went on this whole bandwagon once I was like, do we just call them unknown, like, you know, unidentified phenomena at this point? But that seems like too vague of an umbrella term. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Um, no, it is. I think we should go back to flying saucer. Yeah. Well, I actually kind of liked how Keel, when you would listen to, you know, the recordings of him, he said UFO. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I actually appreciate that because, you know, obviously, yes, it's a reference <laughs> to a UFO, but you're just kind of calling it. It's just a UFO. You know, you're almost taking away the concept of having it stand for something. True. I don't think it was intentional on his part, but I thought that was kind of neat. Well, you don't know if it was intentional or not. It's John. I, he could have yeah. He could have had it in his head that way or it could have happened. <clears throat> he said it that way because he was saying it fast. And then you never know. It, it may have become part of his his psyche that it's not an unidentified flying. What's this? It's it's a UFO, you know, it's, it's <laughs> exactly. And remember, the he, he didn't like to be called a ufologist either. He was a Fordian. He was insulted if somebody yes. called him a ufologist. Yes. Well, and I think uh, his business card too, you know, not an authority on anything, is that's the only way to really go about, you know, researching this field, in my opinion. Yes, I think, I think so. Again, once you have somebody tell you, I know exactly what this is, oh... That's when my brain just kind of goes smile and nod, smile and nod, just smile and nod and walk away quietly and nice. See you later. Bye. <laughs> it's the lizards. <laughs> but, you know, but but seriously, I mean, I, the, there's so much to Keel. I mean, he he gave us so much. I mean, he's got those great to call them catchphrases doesn't really you know, say what they are, like, like belief is the enemy. There's much deeper than that. But uh, he, I mean, how far do you ladies think that he, the advent of John Keel advanced this field? If there was no John Keel, would we still be, you know, uh, talking about uh, everything as being so separate, you know, the, the ET uh, phenomena, but then we have Bigfoot over here and there's no, there's no crossover. Uh, and the way he uh, talked about, uh, you know, poltergeist phenomena, psychic phenomena and so forth. Uh, he, boy, he just really smashed through all the, uh, the barriers and all the beliefs of the, uh, of the researchers of that time. But I, I just can't imagine how many decades ahead we are with, because of Keel. Yeah, I think too, you know, part of it, he had the, the research and the investigation to back all this up, but the way he handled the material was also so engaging, you know, that I think that actually also went a long way too to, you know, not necessarily popularizing this idea, because of course it is still kind of on the fringe. Um, but I really think that, you know, just his humor with handling it and the engaging way that he wrote, how honestly literary it was, I think that it made it a lot more approachable. Then if you would have like, you know, say just someone who is really deeply invested in kind of, I hate to say it, the drier, just more simply research based or investigation based, you know, writing style, because um, yeah. definitely he was a fantastic writer. I mean, when you read his books, he just it's something between, you know, kind of like sort of cosmic horror and again, kind of like almost the pulpy type magazine feel. And it's just mm -hmm. it's fantastic. And then right smack dab in the middle of it is some paradigm shattering you know, information. It's just, yeah. it's phenomenal. Yeah. And of course, Colin Wilson said that John Keel was incapable of writing a dull sentence. 
And it's interesting because uh, Wilson corresponded with Keel a good deal, and that's covered a lot in Alien Dawn. And uh, Keel had a huge influence on some of the big, big researchers like uh, uh, Colin Wilson and, uh, and F.W. Holliday and, and so forth. But uh, I was going to kind of put a, 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 a little bit of a plug in for Azealia's book because Keel, you know, at, when, when I was exposed to Keel and was uncomfortable with Trojan horse, Operation Trojan horse, and some of these ideas. You know, he starts out with talking about window areas and strange creatures from time and space. Then he gets really into it in Trojan horse. Uh, but he now, you know, for, for decades, I haven't been able to look at this phenomena without seeing patterns that are there. And I'm not, you know, I'm not imagining these things. They're there. And I have to say, Zelia's book, Just Another Tinfoil Hat Presents, is just a phenomenal. I mean, every chapter is is steeped with, with how, how do I want to put this? Uh, uh, the Well, sort of the groundwork and the, and the philosophy and the, the approach that Keel laid out is, is exhibited in Zelia's book. And it's a real pleasure to read. And I, I got a little jealous once in a while because she would come up with these things. I thought, I didn't see that. I didn't see that. And I thought, wow, that's pretty good. But, uh, but that's what he gave us is he, he laid this out, this, the groundwork for to be able to start to see the broad spectrum of all this and, and start to put it together. Because that's where I think that we begin to it make some progress finally in this rather than just kind of spinning around and collecting our little reports here and there and, you know, our files getting bigger and bigger, but not, you know, putting it together and, and starting to figure things out. Yeah. I, I think that, that you're absolutely onto something there. Um, he was way ahead of the pack back in the day. Um, and, and he got, he got crap for it from other researchers you know he inspired <laughs> yes. a lot of researchers but he did take a lot of flack for his bizarre ideas and you know people would oh that's just keel again he's gone off wild-eyed and strange but mm -hmm. you know the whole belief is the enemy will come right back there on the guitar uh with that i love how he describes in a in a talk he gave in the in the early 2000s where he talks about being out on a hill overlooking the Ohio river and watching these lights bob up and down the river Valley up in the sky. And, you know, he decides to use his flashlight to signal them using Morse code. And so they, he would, he would, you know, flash descend and, and the light would descend and then he would flash up and the light would go up. And then he realized, wow, they can, they know Morse code. So let's see if they know Morse code or if they're just reading my mind, I'm just going to make up a code and I'm not going to tell anybody what it is. I'm just going to make it up. And he flashed, you know, I guess in his head, he decided, you know, three flashes is up and two flashes is down or, you know, whatever he decided it was, they would then do 
as he had asked. That has so many ramifications. If you sit and think about it, what does that mean? Does that mean that it's reading his mind? If so, what is it that is reading his mind? You know, that that should give everybody pause right there. Is he in some way controlling them? Is it part of him? What What's going on here? And that's where you might get ideas like Greg Bishop's idea of co-creation, where something is interacting with our minds and between our minds and that consciousness, an action and a, a, a phenomena is being created. So that's where he, he said, you know, anytime he came up with a theory, even if he didn't tell anybody, the phenomena would reflect that back to him and would give him proof. And it happened over and over and over again. And so I really think that's where he decided, okay, yeah, you got to be careful. You can't just say, okay, I've got it. It's, it's, it's the hollow earth. It's, it's ultra terrestrials from inside the hollow earth. Richard Shaver was a little bit right, but also a little bit crazy. So that's what it is. That's what it's going to be. And then, you know, boom, you'll start getting proof of it. It isn't even just self-fulfilling prophecy or natural bias on your part. The phenomena will just start feeding you the answers that you're seeking. And if that doesn't make your head hurt, there's probably something wrong with you. <laughs> that is exactly what I took from that very, you know, experience that he talked about with the Morse code and the lights. Because um, I think he had a shortened um, passage on that in the Mothman Prophecies or in mm -hmm. Eighth Tower. And I remember, you know, not the first time I went through, but like several times afterwards, when I came across that I was like, this, this right here is the evidence that this is not just, you know, something we're seeing. It's not just simply the other, but that there is some intrinsic connection between the observer and the observed. Because I know I thought exactly the same thing. If it's some, you know, it's not that it knows Morse code, it's that Keel knows Morse code. And mm -hmm. he knows, yeah, same, same exact vibes. And I know that was also the same exact reason why Eighth Tower put me out for a couple weeks. Because it gets to this point where you wonder, are we ever going to be able to pin down any truth about this phenomenon? You know, because it does seem as though there is the ability for it to um, both use our belief systems to reflect what we want to hear and then sometimes to destroy what we want to hear, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's just this constant spinning that it's like, I don't know. <laughs> it sort of goes to the heart of our existence. And uh, I've always tried to, uh, you know, when we, we talk, they talk about uh, consciousness and how uh, thoughts are things, you know, all the, mm -hmm. the, the positive motivational books and so forth. And how if we could you talk about uh, you break down atoms into their smaller particle mesons and so forth, and they're you know in, in on a, a microcosm there's this, all this space between these particles to where it becomes nothing. It's not solid, but it's it's almost like uh, it's almost like that the laws that govern some of this maybe they exist somewhere between what we call substance and consciousness. And, you know, that maybe that's why it's so elusive sometimes. And I haven't, haven't really got a handle on all this. But, uh, but yeah, it is, I, I agree, it's, it's so frustrating that, uh, you know, we, we start to go around in circles. 
And I, I can't help but thinking of, of Dr. Leak in the Mothman Prophecies film saying, we're not allowed to know. Well, well damn it, <laughs> we need to know is what, what Richard Gere said. Don't, didn't you need to know? Well, damn it, yes, we need to know. But it's but you know there's this inner uh, the inner uh, the, the way it's constructed or whatever that makes it so elusive, and uh, you know I wonder if maybe we should, we should just take up uh, macrame or something like that uh, instead. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I, I probably seriously. wouldn't do that. But you know. it's, I see, do but then you look in the sky. Then you'd look in the sky and just see giant macrame coming down. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> It, it's, no, that's it's, been. Oh. Go ahead. No, go on. No, that's been no, my question too. Ever since um, demonic reality, which I absolutely love, um, but I do feel like it's kind of funny because I feel like you know, by especially the eighth tower, Keel had a slightly. I feel like he did have a mainly neutral and slightly negative view of the phenomenon, and on the flip side, I feel like Patrick Harper um, in demonic reality has a neutral but mainly positive view of the phenomenon. So it's interesting because I absolutely adore the theories of both Keel and Harper, but it's just kind of funny because I feel like it's almost like the devil and the angel on the shoulder thing, but, you know, they're both effectively the same deal. So anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but no, ever since reading Demonic Reality, that's been kind of my, you know, not to say struggle, but like the thing that I have been debating is how much of the phenomenon is the other. You know, I mean, I am a huge fan of the concept, you know, kind of piggybacking on Jung's concept of the daemon, you know, these almost kind of like thought forms, which may have some life of their own. Um, of course, that was expounded upon a ton in demonic reality. And that has been the question for me is how much of this really is simply some mechanism which maybe we possess or the collective unconscious possesses, you know, or even a person's subconscious possesses that manifests as this thing. Does that have a truly separate form? Is it really the other? And that right there, that that is like the big question for me. And I really, again, I don't know if we'll ever exactly pin that down. I'm still looking, but yeah. And and then how do we explain things like the uh, all the stuff that happened on the Skinwalker Ranch, all all the the different things that happened in Dubbed Wales in '77 in Southwest Wales? Uh, there there is so much going on. So much of it is. Uh, sort of a shadow of folklore it could be explained you know you get the little the the the, the seven foot tall silver suited beings but you also get the little guys with the curved nose and slanted eyebrows um but there are aspects of it that, that seem to be very physical and we may well be dealing with some other intelligence in some cases you know look at albert rosales that those uh 15 volumes now of uh, the humanoids, the others amongst us. Good Lord. Uh, you know, are these all demons? Are they all thought forms? Are, I, I don't know. And uh, it, it just gets to be really overwhelming. But I, I think uh, Keel and his research has helped us kind of chart our way through this. We're not completely helpless, you know, even though it gets very frustrating sometimes. It's like he's given us these, these great... Uh, guidelines uh you know like the uh uh ask the contactee what they had for breakfast meaning find out all about the individual and then of course he found out that people that saw a ufo or had missing time had all kinds of things happen all through their life with the with creatures with with uh, haunting phenomena and so forth um 
so uh, I'm not sure where I, I guess I guess the point is that uh, he has given us tools to begin to work our way through this. Yeah. And speaking of Albert Rosales, um, he has way more than the 15 volumes because oh, I, I, I've I've got access to much of his entire database. Bless him. Oh, and uh, the amount of information is overwhelming, which is why uh, Chris Diltz is working on building the database and making it do everything but jump up and sing so that we can parse through all of that information and find the patterns. Uh, because in just as printed matter, it, it's, it's, man, your brain gets overloaded very, very quickly. And have you read Ahmad Jamaluddin's uh, 60 years of suppressed evidence about where he takes yes. El Rosales and puts it and he finds these fascinating patterns. Well, yes. why, what are those patterns come from? And what I'm talking about is he found that uh, uh, humanoid encounters happen mostly at certain times of the day, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And they, uh, but, but it happens uh, in every time zone, suggesting that the point of manifestation or entry from wherever is the same at the same point as the world turns. And then he, yeah. he looks at the, the scope from eight to 10 year cycles where these things show up in different countries, different parts of the globe. And it's mind blowing. It's like there is some kind of design there. Is the design something deep within that Carl Jung subconscious that that's designing all this? That, or or is there is there some separate intelligence running this? Yeah, that's one of the. We're actually going to use that book to see if we can um, confirm or falsify his findings. That's one of the the first things that we're doing with that data. Um, one of the things we have found, though, is there do appear to be clusters of sightings in places that appear over and over in time. So oh we God. may we may actually be able to point to some window areas, and if we can get an idea of those eight to ten year cycles, we might be able to predict where things will happen. Um, but eventually that's, that's still in the future. We eventually want to add in <clears throat> UFO sightings and um, hauntings and, and other stuff like that. Just put it all together in separate databases, but that can run together so that we can see if we can pinpoint window areas. That is beyond exciting. Of, yes. I have a couple of world maps rolled up I haven't used yet. But I want to put it out, and I want to put his uh, – he had about, I don't know, five or six uh, of these uh, humanoid migrations, he called them, over mm -hmm. each decade. So I want, to, I want to try and put them all on this one map, you know, color-coded uh, so that I can differentiate. But I don't – I don't know. I've got two maps because I know I'm going to screw up the first one royally. So there may be the second one. But I was just wondering if I can lay it all out, if I can see if I'll, I'll suddenly have some kind of brainstorm and it'll make a fascinating chapter in my forthcoming book out sometime this decade. But uh, yes, it's just it's it again, it's it's still it's very Keelian. You're looking at 
at the broad spectrum and finding patterns that are there. So it's uh, it's endlessly fascinating. And, and Zelia, I still have not finished Demonic Reality. I picked it up a million times since uh, since Kevin Nelson several years ago at the Van Meter. I, I, I've had it for years. He said, you have to read this book. It's fascinating. So, but I, I just haven't, uh, once I get settled in and get, get moved somewhere and, and get my library in order, I will, uh, that'll be the first book I pull out, I guess. It has an amazing, yes. And one of the most interesting parts is right at the end, and it has to do exclusively with Keel, where he kind of looks at Keel's experiences in Point Pleasant as an almost, um, I don't want to necessarily say shamanic awakening, but kind of something in line with that. Um, positing that maybe Keel was almost the nucleus of the phenomenon. And I thought that, I mean, again, who knows? And that's my bottom line with all of this stuff is who knows. But it was definitely an interesting way of looking at it um, because, of course, Keel did have a pretty strong track record of bizarre and anomalous experiences. Um, so yes. to think of that in terms of possibly having some of the phenomena center around him, you know, I thought that seemed incredibly interesting, especially given how many times he did have not even beliefs, but just thoughts confirmed. Of course, my favorite absolute infamous case is um, the men in black with the gills. But yes. I mean, that's just one of many, it seems. Uh, can I mention, I never met John Keel, but I wanted to give a couple examples of, uh, we talked about his humor a little bit and, and just the kind of man he was. But uh, a friend of mine, Kevin, we, we had our, our UFO group in uh, high school, and uh, he went. Uh, he went to the 1967 Congress of Scientific Ufologists. I love that name. It was run by James Mosley at the Commodore Motel in New York City, and John Keel was there. Gray Barker, uh, uh, Roy Thinnis, who was starring in the Invaders TV show at the time, was there. Uh, on and on. Uh, Timothy Green Beckley, Alan Greenfield. And, uh, and and all those people. Well, he and, and Kevin got to meet all these people. I was supposed to go. His we were we were in junior high. So his mom he asked his mom to take him to New York City to go to the UFO convention. And bless her heart, she took him and was going to take me too. But my parents thought, not nah, this kid isn't going to New York City. So I thought, oh well, I had to live <laughs> vicariously through Kevin. I know it. But the good thing is, Kevin actually did a lot of. Uh, work behind the scenes for Saucer News. He was helping them with whatever they were doing. So they gave him a bunch of books, a bunch of loot to come bring back. And so I inherited those books. That was, we talked about, uh, we've talked about uh, Trevor James Constable in, in other, oh, other yeah. contexts, but I got his first book, They Live in the Sky from, from Kevin. It was part of the loot he brought back. But anyway, what I, my, here's my long-winded point. I think it was the next year he decided, he went again and he, and this time, his mom wasn't going to take him, but he, he decided he was going to go. And he, he rode the bus to New York City, and he got there. And uh, he met a, a buddy of his named Mark, and they found out where John Keel lived. So he said, can I say uh, he had the balls to do this? I yes. Guess I can. You can. <laughs> okay. That's what he said. He said, we well, actually had the balls to knock on his door cold <laughs> at his apartment. And he, he was there. He was in his PJs. They were all sitting in the in the uh, front room, the living room, and they were sitting cross-legged on the floor. Keel was surrounded by by hundreds, thousands of newspaper clippings, and this I think was uh, 
you know, he was commissioned by Playboy to write a comprehensive article on UFOs. Now that never actually came to fruition, but this this research, I believe, was the beginning of Operation Trojan Horse, Trojan Horse. and the yeah. Wednesday phenomena and so forth. But they they sat around for about an hour, hour and a half. He was very gracious, and I thought, oh God, to have have been there and experienced that. Would have just been, but but what a nice guy, you know these these two starry-eyed UFO kids uh, wanting to meet John Keel, and he, he let them in and talked to him. I just thought that was really cool. That is sweet. That's a that's a great story. That is amazing, and to think they probably did walk in on history in the making, Operation Trojan Horse. Yes, right. All Holy smokes! <laughs> All spread out over the floor. Can, can I tell you another Keel story? Uh, I uh, uh, I had a uh, an old black and white TV with UHF channels on it. Now, for you kids out there that don't know what UHF was, that was you know we had our regular basic channels. This is way before cable or satellite, and this was the the like the channel fifties and sixties or whatever. You had to actually tune them in, and the rabbit ears for your regular TV didn't work. You had this this circular antenna. And Zelie, have you ever seen one of those? Those old TVs? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, not in real life, but like pictures, yeah. <laughs> not, not in real life, like you <laughs> old people. Okay. In, my, yeah. in my past life, maybe. No. So we got channel, uh, you know, you get your PBS stations out of that and so forth. But uh, uh, we had a channel 50 that got in all these great uh, uh, syndicated talk shows out of New York City. And there was uh, Joe Pine, you know, the first shock jock. He had uh, James Mosley on one time, giving him a rough time. James Mosley was talking about the Mothman. And, uh, but there was also another guy named Alan Burke. And Alan Burke had Ivan Sanderson on one night. I actually have a reel-to-reel recording of this somewhere in my, my archives. <clears throat> and uh, he was talking about the Bermuda Triangle. Even before he was writing about it, you know, the, the vile vortices in his subsequent book. And John Keel came with him. He was there in the audience. And even back in those days, you could come up to the speaker and ask questions or whatever. So that's the first time I actually saw John Keel, a, a young, slim John Keel. You know, he had his beard and uh, he still had his sense of humor. So that was uh, that was very cool. That was uh, and just one aside uh, because of Zelia's uh, tinfoil hat productions. That the same guy had uh, uh, Barbara. You know who the Mystic Barber was? Andy Sinatra. Yeah. One of the one of the one of the old contactees. This guy had the original tinfoil hat. He would stand out in front of the United Nations with this long tube on his head and and keep the evil Martians away from the the Earth. And anyway, he was on Alan Burke one time, and he had his lampshade ray gun. And, and anyway, it was just uh, th- these shows were just. Uh, so entertaining, and I wish they were available for people to see. But but it just that Keel was uh, uh, he's, he's been a presence, I guess, in my life, even though I never got to meet him. And, and later on, I'll talk about uh, a couple guys that met him at the uh, at the Mothman Festival where they unveiled the statue. But uh, I'm going to give the floor to everybody else here for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, Zelia, what do you think uh, about some of the other other sayings that Keel had. I know that that there's, you know, your church has the eight towers of John Keel. So what are what's your next favorite saying? 
my favorite, of course, is everybody hates the phone company. <laughs> I love that. Even the Bedouins hate their phone. Yes, company. even the Bedouins. Hate their oh phone yes, company. I think probably one of my favorites has got to be. It's kind of a long one from the Eighth Tower, and ooh, even there. Okay, so I've got. There's too many to choose from if we're being honest. But one of my all-time favorites has got to be. We do not know the place where flying saucers and hairy monsters come from. But we do know where they go. The poor slobs literally melt. <laughs> yes. I love that. Because, of course, he was discussing the concept of transmogrification and temporal, temporal manifestations. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because Ivan Sanderson in Uninvited Visitors um, kind of discussed a similar thing. But it's interesting to look at Sanderson because, of course, you know, his background being zoology, I do feel like most of the time he did tend to take a more physical view of the matter. Mm -hmm. um, and this is one of those cases where he would discuss, especially with like the Flatwoods monster, he believed that these lights that people were seeing and even the monster itself was actually decaying into some sort of, I don't know, a radioactive sludge or something as the encounter went on. Whereas with Keel, I think that was a little bit more tongue in cheek. Um, but that's definitely one of my favorites. Also from the Eighth Tower, again, it was the punchline of a long winded um, kind of mental exercise that ended with the microbe would laugh in your face. <laughs> but but Celia, it's interesting because and that's one of the things that uh, I want to be talking about when we go to the Beast of Bray Road conference is how these things, how Keel talked about these things seem to come out of nowhere, but they act like real animals. They may even yes. kill prey and eat them and leave footprints, but then they, like you say, they kind of melt and go away. And uh, that would, you know, we, we've heard, uh, well, on Lee Hample's farm near Bray Road, he found these five-toed footprints that aren't supposed to exist anywhere uh, of these dogmen, uh, uh, apparently these dogmen that start in the middle of nowhere, end in the middle of nowhere. There are big footprints that even Ron Moorhead has discovered out in the Sierra Nevadas that do the same thing. I suspect that, that studying the Eighth Tower by John Keel might give us some answers as to how is it, you know, are these things flesh and blood and they step out of a portal uh, or, or, or are they forming? I mean, there have been, uh, and I know Zelia has done a lot of research into uh, uh, what Paul Devereaux has called proto entities where, and you also alluded to it earlier, where the craft or the object or the orb is not is inseparable from the entity so there's there's so much uh, for other researchers to learn i think from john keel yeah. well it, the whole idea of the transmogrification of energy into matter and back and forth you know i mean we we know that e equals mc squared we, we know well, we, we, we say we know that. Most people don't actually understand how that works. Um, but physicists do, and, and that's good, because most of the rest of us have no clue. But we say we know it, and, and that's good enough. When I've had my experiences with things that seem to be physical... Um, they really do seem to be physical. They are interacting with the physical world. They're making things move. 
Um, they're making sounds that are hideously loud. You know, that's that's yeah. that's a lot of physical activity. The the dogs notice it. You know, my husband notices it. It wasn't just me that time. You know, that kind of thing tells me that there is a physical thing there, and yet there are no footprints. There, there is no physical evidence left. It's as if they just melt away, like the angel hair that fell from the UFOs back in the 60s, the, the fine white fibrous matter that then dissolves into nothingness. You know, it, it, it's so fascinating to me that, that they can perhaps have temporary bodies that are matter in some way, shape, or form, but then go back to energy and then back and forth. And then you wonder, if, if they can do that, what, what do they want with us? Yeah. Because if I, I could do that, I don't know that I'd play with people like us. <laughs> that's the intriguing thing, too, is that, you know, Keel kind of nailed down how there are um, kind of parallels to that, especially in ancient demonology. You know, that the demons would take temporary forms and that they would need to consume of this world in order to take that form. And I know Lefale has um, made kind of that comparison with especially, of course, the fairy faith, um, that there are similar motifs there. And mm -hmm. it's amazing because, you know, I do think that, you know, the portal idea is one that's tossed around a lot. Um, to me, it seems as though a lot of the time we are dealing with things that are, in the most vague sense of the word, kind of forming as they go. And then they do, as Kiel said, melt or dissolve. Um, the question is, yeah, for what purpose? I mean, I always think of the Rochdale creature from Indiana, 1972, where you had this thing that did seem, you know, for all intents and purposes, like a Bigfoot. They actually thought it was a gorilla at first. It killed over 100 chickens. Um, and then at the, on the flip side, it didn't leave footprints all the time. Sometimes it appeared translucent. The family was beset by poltergeist-like manifestations. Mm -hmm. um, it was pre, um, kind of preceded by this exploding light in the sky and disembodied voices. You know, so you do, you kind of can almost see in that case, though, and this is what's so interesting about it, how it began almost spectral and then started almost gaining materiality, culminating with the, you know, complete destruction of over 100 chickens before fading away. You know, I mean, the question remains, though, if we even look at these forms as temporary, can we say that whatever animated or brought them forth is temporary? You know, to me, it seems as though they perform some function, you know, they appear and then they go away and whatever set that in motion, I don't think that that is spontaneous. I think that it's part of a longer running, you know, I don't know, narrative or pattern, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, Zelia, I can't wait till we get to the, uh, Beast of Bray Road Conference because Barbara, we uh, last time last year when I was there, uh, Lee Hample has his farm adjacent to Bray Road. He has uh, Linda Godfrey has written about him extensively, originally under a pseudonym, but he showed us two hours of photographs that he's captured with his trap cameras. A lot of things that look like technology, strange things flying around in the sky. 
but it's also he's catching part of these dogmen or whatever. He'll get a silhouette, a part of like a shoulder or whatever, or one of them off in the distance. So you have these creatures that eat roadkill, that eat bait, that footprints just last for a period of time, and then they go away. He, he, he sent photographs off to the DNR and universities. Some people have said, you're lying, you're faking it, and that that can't exist. You know, he's, he's tried actually to get the scientific community involved. But you have this, what appears to be this bizarre technology. And I don't, you know, there's the, 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 the amount of photographs are, are phenomenal. But then you get these things that act like animals. But And, and the, the Bucks County Paranormal uh, group was out there and they, they put up their video of what happened. And it's creepy as hell because you hear there's something howling back and forth. I, I don't know animal howls well enough to know what what it was. But they were seeing eye shine six foot off, six feet off the ground. And it's almost like you, you talked about what's the purpose of these things. These things, it suggests to me that they're sort of like sentries, scaring the hell, you know, scaring people away. They were out there and they intended to stay out all night. But the, the one guy, Dominic, was a, uh, a, a psychic, said that he, I asked him what he was feeling like. He said he felt like he was underwater in a shark cage holding the shark bait. And mm -hmm. they were, they were and, and Eric, who normally doesn't get spooked to the stuff, they were all getting really freaked out. And there's also these strange mists that show up. I talked to another group of people that were out there, and this thick mist came in about three in the morning, uh, and to the point where it was, it was damaging their equipment. And so they got out of there. But the point is, you've got this head-on collision between sort of the Keelian <clears throat> beasts that that melt or go somewhere. But you know, it, it it seems like there has to be some kind of well, maybe there doesn't have to be some kind of purpose. Maybe it's something that's just reflective back to us but I, I wish and, and i wish you could see this too barbara the uh yeah, a few of the photographs have been published but he has thousands of these these things over the last 10 years this stuff is going on all the time it's like a laboratory the paranormal right there and i wish john you know this would be john keel would be beside himself if he could be there to see this this would be perfect for him but it would be the only way to, I think, to begin to understand some of this is applying Keel's principles. But that some of this may suggest that actually this is some kind of a alien or other intelligence technology that, you know, uh, phases in and out of this area. Why? I don't know. But, uh, you know, and, and then it's reminiscent of the Skinwalker Ranch, all the different things going on there. Um, but then... And I'll end with this. Uh, there are elements of the Skinwalker Ranch that seem, if you if you isolate certain things, it could be ET or extra dimensional. But then you get the the disappearance, the displacement of the bulls. Remember that that incident? Yeah. The, it, mm -hmm. It's more like the trickster. It's more like the uh, uh, our own, uh, you know, the the subconscious mind messing with us somehow. Mm -hmm. So I, again, you go around in circle, but but. Uh, you know, it, it, there's the only way to begin to understand what's going on on Lee Hample's property, I think, is to read John Keel. Yeah. It's a good starting place anyway. You know, you can't just... I, I feel like you, you have to have at least a little something 
to guide you when when it gets that high strangeness when you have that many different high strangeness things happening in one place at one time um because what happens is you have people like Dominic and the other guys they you know they just they start to get scared when they're not used to being scared and 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 they they bail you know which is a perfectly logical thing to do in in most situations um but you do you you have to have to look at things it's so hard to look at these things logically when there appears to be no logic yes yeah that's so hard it's so difficult and keel kind of gives us a a type of logic to work with i do feel like too you know because bringing up the lack of any sense there is you know I, I think we talked about this in the last episode in so many encounters there is such a high degree of nonsense um that just makes it all the more frightening i feel most of the time for the witness um because you know there's nothing you can really hang your hat on in these high strangeness cases like you know one of my favorites the sandusky sasquatch this guy has a sasquatch encounter Suddenly there's this cover up by local law enforcement that, you know, we typically would associate in the post X-Files world with, you know, UFO sightings. And then less than three days later, he has this invasion by these pink glowing humanoids. Um, and there's nothing wild. I'm sorry. Pink glowing no, humanoids <laughs> from Sasquatch to pink glowing humanoids is just not fair to this guy. And not to mention that they were also projecting psychic messages at him. Um, yeah. So he also had that to grapple with while there was a UFO flap in the area. Um, you know, or of course, to another favorite of mine, which Keel did mention, um, he headed up by saying, have you heard the one about the walking tree stumps? You know, you have a family <laughs> beset by poltergeist phenomena. After this girl throws a rock at what she thought was someone playing a trick on her, she saw this flashlight-like object. Suddenly a million other lights come on and for the next six months, her family is undergoing daily poltergeist manifestations, also in the middle of a UFO flap. Um, you know, and so it's like in the middle of this whole thing, too, she sees what she can only describe as walking tree stumps. So, you know, to try and pin down because it is, you know, it's the human condition to try and make sense of anything. You know, we do try to seek patterns and we try to fit stuff into boxes. And that is exactly what everyone does even in their daily life. And then you get something as wild as that. And I feel like it just it probably leaves people, especially people who aren't necessarily interested in this prior to their experiences, just kind of spinning, you know, because mm -hmm. it's one thing to see Bigfoot. It's another thing to see Bigfoot and then see five glowing humanoids, you know, projecting psychic messages, which you then feel when you go back to the area of your encounter. And, you know, I yeah. think that that's something that Keel really had, too. He was armed definitely with an almost trickster-esque sense of humor himself. And I think that's one of the reasons he really did succeed in not really pledging himself to any one belief system, you know, because at the end of the day, it seems as though he really didn't take himself too seriously. You know, he kind of let himself be free of the need to be the authority. And with that, he was kind of free to just be like, yeah, here's what I found. What does it mean? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think anybody knows. Yeah. yeah, he was he was he was really clear about there is no way to know um, because it's it's mutable it changes it 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 can turn on a dime it can appear and disappear at will well what do you do with that 
<laughs> really? And again, I really feel for the dude who saw Bigfoot because you can say in your head, well, that's Bigfoot. Yeah. Everybody in America knows what Bigfoot is, right? We can de- we can deal with that past a certain point. Yeah. Pink glowing humanoids in your house talking psychically to you. Not in my no. House. Yeah, that just that's not fair. It's just not And you know, how many times have these high you know, when I called your book the the uh greatest hits of high strangeness I, I I was somewhat joking, but I was also kind of telling the truth. But I do wonder how many other hits of high strangeness have we missed because it happened to people and they were like, I'll be damned if I'm telling anybody this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've wondered how many things are told in part. You know, like some will be like, oh, yeah, I had a UFO sighting. And then they don't tell you about, you know, X, Y, Z, what happened afterwards. Yeah. I, yeah. Or they don't tell you what happened before because they didn't think of it as being related. Yes. It's amazing, too. Um, t- and this is kind of a personal account. And I, I'm not sure if I told it uh, on this podcast before. So if it's a rerun, I do apologize. Um, you'll have to let me know. But it's amazing, too, to see just you know what people kind of, who aren't even trying to be dogmatic about a certain belief system, how it just kind of spins things. Because when I was a kid... Um, my mom had grown up, she's one of nine kids, and in the house where she grew up, there was a lot of, you would term it classic haunting type activity. I mean, disembodied voices, uh, things being thrown around. It was almost, I mean, very classic haunting type stuff, some poltergeist type stuff. There was a lot of ESP phenomena, prophetic dreams, things like that. And so as a kid, when I heard about how she and her sister had seen this big glowing light outside, it was just something that happened in the haunted house. And so flash forward to when I was really, really into the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And I, because for a time, I was really into ufology in the nuts and bolts sense of the term. And I went back to that. I was like, wait, you guys saw this, you know, light in the sky. And, you know, my aunt was upstairs, coincidentally enough, in the ghost room. My mom was downstairs. Suddenly they were next to each other, both watching the same light. My mom remembers it kind of being dissolved into a mist. My aunt remembers saying, well, let's just go to bed. Um, The next year, my aunt had moved out and she woke up in the middle of the night and saw my mom in her bedroom. And she went to turn a light on and said, well, what are you doing here, Lori? And of course, my mom vanished. Well, the tricky thing about that that kind of hits it out of the park of hypnagogic uh, hallucination is the fact that she could correctly identify what my mom was wearing and how her hair was. So again, when I was a kid, those were just things that happened when they lived at the ghost house. When I was really into UFOs, I was like, oh, man you guys, this sounds like an alien abduction. I was thinking, okay, the light, that was, you know, a year before they saw this thing. There's some missing time because, you know, they were separate and then they were together. And then the next year, maybe they were both taken onto the ship. I am literally kind of cracking myself up as I'm saying this. They were both taken on the ship. That's what my aunt remembers. And she phrased it as waking up in her bedroom. And again, you know, when I think back to the, and I was, you know, because bless my aunt and my mom, they did not say, you're crazy. They just listen and say, you know, that does kind of make sense. (laughs) Kind of. Kind of, yeah. (laughs) You know. And now, flash forward how many years later, where I am definitely more of the mindset that most alien abductions, and again, I always use the term most because I'm not going to claim all of them, are probably not due to actually being extraterrestrials taking people onto a craft or type case about a year later. Um, I know my aunt um, had really, really strange dreams 
after that initial event of being led by orbs of light and things like that. Um, so we still have a truly anomalous encounter, even taking away that taxonomy of UFO belief, which had replaced the taxonomy of strictly a haunted house. Um, but it is, you know, you don't try and make these biases when you're caught up in a certain belief system. It just sort of naturally happens. So, yeah. And what's interesting is the facts of the case of the case. Exactly. Absent of any uh, uh, belief system are the same. You can hang the, those hats of, of those facts into whatever formation you want in whatever belief system. And yet the facts remain the same. Well, that, you know, when I realized that, that's, I really realized that when I um, started doing the, I'm not going to believe in anything. I'm just going to write down how things happened with the, just the facts, ma'am. I'm going to be like dragnet and that's what I'm going to do. And then I looked at it. I'm like, well, geez, maybe I am an alien abductee because you could put that all right in there. Well, I don't like that. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. I don't like that at all. You know, I called Morgana. I'm like, oh my God, all these things Whitley Straber is writing about sound really familiar. She's like, you're not an alien. That's what got me like, too, was Bud Hopkins, um, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, yeah. to make matters worse too, my younger sisters, um, you know, my, my middle sister, Lily, she is not interested in any of this stuff. Let me tell you that. But she still, you know, as a kid had really weird experiences. Um, you know, there was one morning where she was insistent that there were these two white suited men that had been in her room. A little bit later on, some years later, she was talking about this adorable deer that she saw in the backyard. She was talking about this tall white rabbit. And I mean, yes, oh, I know, you know there's always the, oh, well, she's a kid. I know, yes, but she's a kid, but the way that she discussed it, it seemed like something she had experienced. It seems like something that she actually observed. So then there I am reading Intruders, and he's talking about, of course, the infamous, you know, the beautiful yeah. deer that and I'm like, just like kind of white knuckling it as With those going big to... eyes. And then, too, he also had an encounter very shockingly similar to my mom and my aunt's encounter with an egg shaped object. And surprise, surprise, it was in the mid 70s, right when theirs was. And I'm like, oh, da, da. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. it, it, it basically, you could take a lot of these experiences. And you can look at them through all of these different lenses and you can fit the facts into whatever belief system you feel like putting it into. Yeah. And that right there makes my brain go, oh, there's something to all of this <laughs> that's much more than what we think it is. You know, all those boxes we want to put things in, when you have facts that can fit in all these different boxes. Well, something, something's happening. <laughs> that's maybe not quite kosher, you know. <laughs> but remember the way. If you go back uh, a few decades <clears throat> uh, before before the advent of John Keel and Jacques Vallée, we didn't have the tools to even yeah. deal with this, you know. And yeah. uh, as as was mentioned before, and and a lot of uh, uh, people that that. Uh, that investigate this and talk to people have found that they don't aren't forthcoming with the entire experience. Sometimes later on, 
they'll start talking about some of the really, you know, I didn't want to tell you this at first because I thought you wouldn't believe me because there are so many of the, these other trappings. Uh, I just wanted to mention briefly, uh, you know, there's so much to John Keel. I recommend people uh, uh, go back and read Jadu, his first book. It talks about his uh, adventures in the, in the far East and Tibet. And uh, he gets into his, uh, his great career in, uh, in, in the military, he was in Germany and, and doing uh, uh, radio shows. He was part of the the, the uh, military broadcasting. Uh, uh, you know, it's it just, just there, there's so much to him. And and there's a, I don't know if it's available anymore, but I I got a hold of it was a set of uh, a two DVD set, boot, a bootleg kind of a thing where they had several of his uh, lectures, mostly at the uh, some kind of a New York Fordian Society, I think it was, and that's where that's his fine. sense of humor. Pausing. As far as I know, those aren't available anymore. I haven't been able to find them. Some okay. my my copy of it have, has disappeared. So if you can okay. find your copy, I have I have them, and I think I I, I, I at least recorded some of the audio mm-hmm. for Zelia one time. They're fantastic. So yeah, yeah. I yes. remember watching them, and and they have disappeared. So I can't. I don't have the ability to copy them. Uh, the the video, but the I mean. <laughs> And, and he gets he gets more into detail. Remember the uh, the purple lights in uh, the yes. Yes. prophecies. That's one of my purple friends. Yeah. Yes. And he gets he gets into more detail about how they came down and surrounded him. You know, you get more. And and also want to recommend uh, there's a two books, uh, the big blackout and the uh, what's the other one? It's the great phonograph in the sky, right? Or are you talking no, about a different? These one? are the ones that are. Oh. Our additional material for the market. The big breakthrough, right? The big breakthrough. Yeah. Yes, and the big blackout. And uh, that's where you you get more of of the Mothman prophecies. And he was uh, it, you you get more into his mind. He's he's questioning. You know, that Jay Perro is the main major figure in the uh, in the Mothman prophecies, and he's asking himself. Is, is she telling the truth? Is, is this legitimate? Uh, but there's no way she could know this stuff because this is stuff that, you know, nobody, nobody knows, even some of the most astute UFO researchers. So uh, there's, just, there's just so much stuff. And uh, I also want to mention uh, that uh, uh, friends of mine, John and Tim Frick, who are very involved with the Mothman Festival, they met John Keel in 2003 at, the, uh, at that festival where they unveiled the the Mothman statue, and they uh, <laughs> they asked him that they want they said we, we want to take you to, to dinner to dinner or lunch or whatever, and he, he said sure, and he said he said well where would you like to go? And he smiled and he said Tiny's. Well, of course Tiny's restaurant was the site site of this you know an overpass of the Mothman, right. which is now Village Pizza. So they had oh can you imagine they had hours of conversation with John Keel all to themselves. And they found out, you know, his, his displeasure with the way that uh, some of the editors uh, messed up his books and, and, and you know, uh, screwed up uh, numbers and, and things that, 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 they had, that, that he had written. Uh, you find out that he was, uh, I don't know who remembers Merv Griffin. He was a, uh, oh, yeah. a talk show host by Johnny Carson, but in the daytime, and he would write ad libs for her. ad libs. He would yep. write for Merv yep. Griffin. Uh, he wrote some of the episodes of Lost in Space, and I remember the one episode that had to be his. It's where the robot uh, grows to be giant, I think, and uh, 
and the the heroes, Will Robinson, everybody are, are inside the robot. And there's these three mysterious men in black. You can't see their faces, and they have the hats on. Anyway, I remember that episode, and I, I hated right. it. <laughs> yeah, so did I. I was not a big fan of Lost in Space, but you know, there was it also creeped me episode. right out. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, the uh, John and Tim are big fans of Lost in Space. I, I can't really can't really go there, but uh, they so they they rewatched them all with the idea to see what Keel might have written. Well, there's one in there where there's a werewolf named Keel. So there you go. <laughs> that's but, that's probably uh, one of them. But it's just that uh, you know he. Uh, they just they found out uh, so much about him, and there, there's so much to be revealed about the man and, and things like Jadu and some of the and again the, the humor uh, of his uh, uh, lectures. And one one other thing I want to say about John and Tim, when John Keel died in 2009, his New York apartment, all his stuff was there, and they they heard from his niece that they were going to come in and just clean everything out and throw it all away. So John was going to try and get uh, rent a, a, a motorbike or something to get there and get some of the material. It was crazy. I mean, I mean to try and get to the heart of New York City. So I think they got a hold of Doug Skinner. And, and you know, and anyway, due to the efforts of uh, John and Tim and Doug, we have a lot of this information was saved from oblivion. And you can go to, I think it's johnkeel.com and, uh, and Doug Skinner. You know, has his. I haven't checked it for a while, but there's all kinds of great stuff. Original uh, letters from Mary Heyer and so forth. And in the last uh, bit of this, I want to say that uh, John Keel, again about his sense of humor. He uh, he was at a signing he, he, at one of the lectures when he used to do them, and Doug Skinner brought his book to have, have it signed. It was an old, beat up copy of the Mothman Prophecies. So John Keel writes. To my friend, Doug Skinner, who's too cheap to buy a new copy of my book. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good great. one. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know how many copies of that book I've, I've either had and then given away to people or had and let them borrow it and it ne I never got it back. I think I've probably bought 20 copies of it by now. So, oh, sure. yeah. <laughs> I, you know what? I tell people sometimes that you may not want to start with the Mothman prophecies if you don't know anything about this. You may want to start with uh, Strange Creatures from Time and Space, i.e. A Guide to Mysterious Beings. Yeah. That kind of leads you in gently, you know, with window areas and all these, the menagerie of, of things of that weirdness. are out there. Yes, because Trojan I'm Horse is, is hardcore. It's almost like that's the textbook. You know, yeah. the Mothman Prophecies is the adventure. The, the uh, Trojan Horse is the textbook, which, uh, I mean, I love it, but I don't know if somebody that goes into that cold, what, how they would. Uh... Zelia, when, when did you, uh, in your, uh, your uh, what, chronology of reading Keel, when did you read Trojan Horse? Trojan Horse was second, well, technically third. So it was right after Mothman Prophecies. Because, of course, The Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings was when I was eight-ish, eight to nine. That was my holy grail of, wow, that was the best cryptozoology book I've ever read, forgot about for years. And then suddenly I'm reading Keel, you know, as a teenager, and I found it again. I felt like I really did uncover the holy grail. I was like, it's this one. Oh, my gosh, it's this one. 
Um, but yeah, Trojan Horse was shortly after Mothman Prophecies. So I was in my mid to late teens. And that was the one that got me. Because um, I read the Mothman Prophecies and I started that when I was still really into UFOs, you know, in the conventional sense of the word. And so I got through Mothman Prophecies and I was like, oh, well, yeah, the, the UFO people were obviously just really interested in whatever this thing was. And, you know, I think that it wasn't really an animal because it couldn't physically fly. So that's something weird, but we're just going to shelf that for now. And I was like, but this Keel guy seems interesting. And so I read, you know, Operation Trojan Horse. And that was the point of no return for me. You know, at that point, I, was, I mean, because that pretty much absolutely delineates and destroys you know the conventional extraterrestrial hypothesis being the answer for the ufo phenomenon i mean yeah no going back from that one what, what are some of uh all of your favorite lines <clears throat> or, or paragraphs you can't you can't recite the whole paragraph maybe but in the mothman prophecies i mean there's it's it's so rich with uh <clears throat> with uh his uh his manner of writing like the for me, the year of the Garuda was at hand. And he talks yes, about the shadow true. passing yes. over, you know, uh, <clears throat> and the and and when uh, every time the Mothman prophecy comes up, <clears throat> the Mothman prophecy, the Mothman festival comes up. I dust off the old quote about uh, the, uh, oh gosh, the, uh, the, 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 the procession of the damned. They started marching that trooping down from the hills like impoverished uh, leprechauns seeking shoemaker. I, I forget how it goes. Yeah, but it, it yeah. sounds like the, the people descending on the Mothman Festival. I love that. I love that sentence. It's a great one. Um, and it, it really does capture West Virginia at that time. Again, it was a fairly homogenous population. Mm -hmm. So in the 60s, when you had hippies and yeah. all of these ne'er-do-wells appearing in the cities and whatnot, it was looked at askance, very, very, very askance. And, and so anytime you had any, anybody different or, you know, didn't look or act the same, it was very, very noticeable at that time. So I, I love that idea that you know the weirdies are out you know and they're trooping along the muddy fields that's a great one um, but again there, there's just so much i'm cruel i give people the mothman prophecies first i don't i don't ease them into anything i'm just like now nah, you got to read this if you can't read this then you know just don't even try with the rest of it if you can't keep going through this one and, and just go for the ride. And, you know, I kind of, I'm like, he's kind of like a gonzo journalist of the high strangeness. Yeah. You can't just, it's not, it's not dry at all. It's an adventure story. It's a horror story in parts. Um, it's true, but is it absolute truth? No, it's one person's perspective on a many things that happened in one small place because Point Pleasant's not that big. And the general area that he was talking about is really not that large. Um, and, but at the same time, it affected everybody in that small town. 
And I guess that's one of the things I try to get across to people. It wasn't just one or two people in this town saw a weird thing. It was a lot of people in that town saw a weird thing, heard a weird thing, saw another weird thing, had weird psychic dreams that came true. You know, what? And, and you were, even if you didn't have a thing happen, you knew somebody who had a thing happen. And then by the end, of course, the bridge falls and then everybody in that community is affected. Yeah. And people like Jeff Walmsley, he was uh, Linda Scarberry's paper boy. He heard the crash when he was six years old of the bridge, even though he didn't see it. Uh, when I went down there <clears throat> 10 years later, because I had read the book to see what the TNT area looked like in the old North power plant, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask anybody about the Mothman or anything like that, because I was afraid I was going to talk to somebody that lost a family member or a friend in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that human angle is one that, you know, the skeptics, in my experience, really don't notice, um, you know, just because too, and it was actually one of Wamsley's books where he had um, Linda, an interview with Linda Scarberry, and she talked about how Keel actually listened. And that was such mm -hmm. a departure. Um, because I know, too, and Steve, we've talked about how, and I don't remember what all of the uh, kind of gossip was with this, but someone was trying to say that Keel was um, kind of propounding almost the satanic concept for the Mothman because he told um, Linda Scarberry, especially, that she could oh, hang a crucifix yes. to make herself feel better. And it's just amazing because when you actually see this interview, she talks about how it did bring her comfort, regardless of the fact that Keel obviously didn't say, oh, yeah, put it up to ward the devil away. He said, put it up to make yourself feel better. And I just, yeah, he had such a caring way. And he you can tell that he became enveloped in the area and mm -hmm. these people's lives and that it was a blow to him as well um, with the events as they transpired with the bridge collapse. And I think that, Remember how he's... yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no, I just, I think that that's an angle too, that people, you know, his detractors especially, definitely don't discuss um, if they see it at all. He spent frantic hours on the phone when the bridge collapsed, trying to get a hold of Mary Heyer to see to make you know to, to see if the friends that he had there were, were okay. And what you were referring to is there there was a an individual years ago that that uh, implied that John Keel created uh, Linda Scarberry made her have a, a uh, nervous breakdown mm. because he 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 emphasized the demonic angle. And boy, that didn't ring true. So actually, John Frick and I t went to Linda Scarberry, who was at one of the, I think it might have been the last Mothman Festival that she attended uh, before she passed. And she laughed and she said, you know, he, he uh, I mean, she was aware that he was not a religious man, but he, like you said, she gave he, he gave her that crucifix because he knew it would give her comfort. She had nothing but praise for John Keel. And so did the other people. When you see, even see some of these documentaries, he, uh, he was very kind to those people. And he always said, he, he, you know, he said these, these people were not, you know, hillbillies because that's what, you know, the way the, yes. you mm -hmm. know, uh, the East Coast and the West Coast wants to look at West Virginians. Uh, you know, that's really kind of a, a, a neat, uh, 
a thing in the film, The Mothman Prophecies, where Richard Gere's character is assuming that Laura Linney grew up on a farm and all that sort of thing. You know, remember that part where uh, yeah. he, she said, well, no, we had, we had shoes and everything to go to church. <laughs> and, and, uh, anyway, it was, it was just really, uh, it, it was, it was fun to, uh, uh, to make, to make, uh, to play with that uh, stereotype and just kind of uh, twist it around. But uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's unfortunate. And uh, it's just, uh, it's another, another way that people distort the truth. But the thing is that it, this happened to, to Rosemary Ellen Guiley as well, who was a, a great friend of John Keel. And uh, she wrote the foreword to Brent Rain's book on John Keel, saying that he's the, he's the one that recognized the interconnectedness of all paranormal phenomena. But people attacked John Keel and Lawrence Mary Ellen Guiley and Jacques Vallée because they hate the message. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's that simple. And uh, I remember even Lucius Farish, who was at one of the creators of the UFO news clipping service, which was a great, uh, great thing. He attacked John Keel in, in a, uh, in, uh, an issue of Caveat Emptor, which was uh, produced by Gene Steinberg, who does the Paracast years ago. And it was great to see the, uh, you can, you, uh, Gene has made those available online. Uh, you, uh, and then you saw Keel's response in the next issue, you know, blow for blow, Farish in this particular case, was distorting, creating several straw men that Keel didn't uh, actually support. So anyway, the wheel turns, and uh, I guess it's just human nature, and we just have to keep putting up with these things and correcting them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, when, when people said that he was, he believed that they were demonic, I don't think he believed that they were, Literally, literally demonic exactly but i do think that he believed that some of some of the results of the being uh experiencing these beings some of the results looked very demonic you know well, some of people. what seemed to be going on Right. was definitely negative in some way. Don't you both think that the these manifestations, whatever they are, have given rise to our beliefs in demons in yes. some respects? Yeah. Well, absolutely. Yeah, it's back to that old thing of, yeah, just because, you know, um, saying that a demon and an alien are the same thing isn't saying an alien is a demon or a demon is an alien. You know, that's, there's just, you know, it's so easy to try and pin something on something that's sensational. And you can say that about any different field of the paranormal. Um, and I think that too, especially Keel, because he really was a master of using, um, you know, kind of just literary devices. Like I know how Sanderson coined ultra terrestrial and Keel used that as a literary device. You know, he's not saying that there like is a hard and fast entity, which does indeed always phase dimensions. Um, he's just saying this is kind of a new term for it. You know, we're going to use this as long as it serves us. The trick is trying to not make that then the new set concrete term. Um, and I think that yes, I think that's my concern for the future. I will say that right here now. So, 
yeah, use it as a placeholder. Exactly. Until we get something better. Um, as Greg said, yeah. you know, just, just pick one, use it as the placeholder and, and move along. He's, and he said that exactly about ultra terrestrial. He's like, that's, yep. that's why he used that term. It was not demon. It was not angel. It was not fairy. It was not alien. Exactly. It was something that yeah. hadn't been used particularly much that was more amorphous. Yeah. So it didn't have a set meaning in people's heads. And he also used it interchangeably at times with elemental. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I do think, too, kind of going back to Steve, um, you know, um, discussing, like, how, you know, these uh, manifestations did seem to give rise to certain things. I do think that Keel did tend to believe, for the most part, that the phenomena was, did have negative effects, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that... Again, that's kind of a slippery slope. People see that and immediately like evil. And that's definitely not what he was saying. He was just saying they have a chaotic effect on a human life, um, which again, you know, it's just, it's so easy to sensationalize things. And suddenly we're not talking about what the actual matter was, you know, that gets mm-hmm. definitely frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, he does when he's going off on one of his, uh, freewheeling wild ride theorizing two or three, four pages in a chapter of any of his books when he, he just, you know, starts going and keeps going and is throwing all these ideas at you willy nilly. And you gotta, you gotta think fast and move fast to catch them all before he's on to something else. Um, When he does things like that, he will say, Things that people could, you know, just pick that one idea out and go, this is what he thinks. Yeah. Ignoring the fact that he goes on in two two more sentences and thinks something else. And he's basically just throwing all of this speculation at you as fast as, as a, as you know, catfish hunter could pitch a baseball. It's, it's like coming at you super, super fast and people will latch on to the one that they really like. I mean, one of the ones people really seem to like is the idea that, um, and he got this from Fort was that humans are owned by something Mm -hmm. that feeds from us. Yeah. The moon, you know, that, that idea of parasitism, you know, and he talks about incubi and succubi and all of this stuff. I happen to think he may be partially correct about the parasitism that may be part of why, you know, these creatures poke at us and scare us so much to get a free quick lunch. But th- I'm not going to grab that out of his book and go, see, it's demons and they feed from us. There it is right <laughs> there. He said so. You know, <laughs> it's right there in black and white. Because, you know, two sentences later, he's something else. Yeah, his thinking was never static. It was always evolving and moving forward with a new piece of speculation. And humor was always there. He didn't really oil up his 14-foot monster traps and then trips off to to Point Pleasant. Exactly. Uh, One of my favorite moments was actually on one of those discs that, Steve, you gave me. And I love those. Um, because it was, you know, during actually the Mothman prophecies, he was giving a lecture somewhere and 
he was talking about what was going on and the sightings and this then suddenly you hear this voice in the audience just you know you can't make out what it's saying and he goes oh that lady what's that oh you know what it is oh you say it's an angel well i didn't know they were that ugly (laughs) yeah yeah you can hear in the back it's an angel i'm like yeah right he was like well i didn't know they looked like that (laughs) they were pretty ugly oh it was the of course he knew darn good and well that biblical angels are things with a thousand eyes and wheels within wheels on fire with a face to the each of the cardinal directions yeah yeah with with three animal faces and a man's and yeah he knows that he knows that perfectly well i i still love the whole idea of people, oh, I saw an angel. It was so beautiful. I'm like, you know, there's a reason in the Bible that they are always saying, fear not, right? The first thing out of the out of the gate when they appear, they go, fear not. Exactly. It's because of what they look like. <laughs> <laughs> I love toward the end. I think it's toward the end of one of the afterwards where he talks about, uh, and I wish I could quote it eloquently, but he talks about how he... Uh, uh, that the last year he had spent standing on hilltops and uh, he has had spent uh, nights in Egyptian tombs and all that sort of thing. And he hasn't lost his childish sense of wonder mm-hmm. as he's, you know, as he's winding down. There, there are several different afterwards to the books, which are all, all interesting because one, he alludes to the film, the Mothman prophecies, mm-hmm. which uh, he, he actually liked. Because he, he uh, when he was interviewed on Art Bell in 2002, it was his first interview forever, and I, I couldn't believe Art Bell. He had didn't know hardly he knew hardly anything about the Mothman, and you know, and so it was all, it was all new to him. But when I when I think back, that was a time period when <clears throat> I think the only thing that stayed was staying in print was the Mothman Prophecies. Mm-hmm. His books were, you know, in his articles you couldn't find anywhere, and he was being bad-mouthed by uh, certain individuals. And uh, I thought, oh, we're, we're losing. I mean, I never lost sight of Keel. And around that time, Keel was still, when Keel was still alive, he was, uh, uh, there was a big uh, convention, paranormal thing that used to happen every year in, I don't know, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia or whatever. I can't remember the name of it, but they would get a lot of the famous ghost hunter people there. And they kept uh, promoting that, well, John Keel's going to be there. Turned out they were lying. <gasps> he wasn't had no intention of going there. I was going to drive there just to see John Keel. But uh, but the, the one of the, I, I won't say whose name is, a very well-known uh, talk show guy said and talked about, yeah, so-and-so is going to be there. And, and, and also there's going to be this, this UFO guy that's been around a while, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. And I thought, you can't remember? You don't know John Keel? It just at, at that point in time, he had been, he was being forgotten. Thank God he has not been forgotten now. And just about everything, almost everything he's written is in print. Not quite everything. Yeah, but. most of it. Most of it is. Right. You know, it, he... Basically, I always had copies of his books, but that's that's because I, you know, bought them while they were in print or I bought them at used bookstores and, you know, carted them around and 
I've I've replaced most of them because the the originals that I had were falling apart. And of course, the Mothman prophecies disappeared over and over and over, you know, because I'd give it to people to read and then they'd never bring it back. And they probably burned it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I've got my original copy. When I heard that the, the Mothman prophecies was going to come out, I waited breathlessly. And I don't remember the the, the, the bookstore, but it was a, a legitimate bookstore with hardcover books. And I went there and I found it, you know, with the dust jacket. Now, I still have it. The dust jacket is in tatters. I have found another copy since then. But I couldn't right. wait to get my hands on that sucker. And the next year, I had what I had done was I went, you know how the events in the Mothman prophecies are told? out of sequence and they jump all over the mm -hmm. place. So I made a calendar and I wrote down when everything actually happened. And I also included other UFO events. And so when I went down right. to Point Pleasant that one Sunday night and found the low hotel, I had my little chart of all the events with my Mothman prophecies. And I went off to find the TNT area when you could actually go drive back there. So uh, that was my, that was, you know, how the uh, in certain cultures, the, the young man goes out and has to kill a lion to be a man. That was me going down to Point Pleasant with my copy of the Mothman Prophecies, uh, yeah, getting that, passing that right of manhood, I guess. Right. You had to you had to go and confront the specter of the Mothman. And, and take photographs with my 35 Minolta uh, camera of the uh, the old North power plant which I was hoping to find after cleaning through the attic and I haven't found them yet. So. Yeah, that's, that's sad because the, the North power plant was a very spooky place. Yes. Cause I do remember seeing that and it was, it was most creepy. <laughs> and it's very sad that it's gone. Yeah. Well, I think we've been talking for almost two hours. So Zelia, do you have anything you wanna you wanna end with, and then I'll I'll jump to Steve. Man, well, this has just been a super fun show. I mean, seriously, um, gosh, I I don't even know how to sum up. Keel has just had such an immense influence, not even just on you know my work and my research, but also honestly, just the way I kind of look at life. Um, I tend to view life as a very strange, bizarre, weird, fantastic sort of thing, and you know taking that idea of belief as the enemy and taking a lot of, you know, just the humor that Keel used to deal with, you know, pretty much the fact that there is just so much mystery um, has had mm -hmm. a profound effect on how I look at everything. So seriously, thanks for having me on the show. This has been so much fun to honor a truly, truly great mind. So thanks. Well, thank you for being here because, you know, I wanted to do something else fun for, uh, Keel's birthday last year, we did a, a massive scripted, it was huge and, and lots of editing. And my husband said he'd never do that again. So, <laughs> so I was like, who are the two biggest Keel fans? And I was like, I know. All right, Steve, what about you? What do you want to say for your, your final words? Well, it's, it's been great to be here with uh, two people that have uh, an understanding and appreciate appreciation of John Keel uh, since um, since Trojan Horse, my entire view of this phenomena and in existence has has changed, has has altered, and um, I can't, you know, it's uh, 
when Zelia and I get together and, and talk about this stuff, it's just, you know, it, we, we need to, we need to have those, those recorded yeah. for posterity, I think. But uh, it's, it's very hard to, and, and, and I, and I do a, a uh, I do a fringe report on Mac Maloney's military X-Files and we, and, you know, I can't, it's hard to, it's hard to get, even on my show, uh, it's hard to, to choke out a few paragraphs without saying, well, you know, John Keel discovered or John Keel said, you know, that there's that, 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 that prevalent is there. And he's not the only one. I mean, we, we have focused on him tonight, but there are many, many others, uh, you know, even more modern incarnations of Keel, like uh, Joshua Cutchin. And, and, and I, I guess I should not, well, and Zelia Edgar, but I, I'm going to stop praise, there because I'll forget, uh, I'll forget uh, like a dozen people I should, should mention. So uh, it is. Uh, it's great that he is uh, sort of being rediscovered again, and uh, I guess I'll end with uh, how blown away I was when I, I first heard Zelia speak at the Van Meter Visitor Festival a few years ago. Didn't know her. I just knew that she had been involved with the Wisconsin MUFON, and she starts talking about things like the super spectrum and Trojan horse. And I'm thinking this kid's only in her early twenties. Oh, wow. Because the, uh, Gene Steinberg, the, the paracast, he would have the old guard on Timothy Green Beckley, uh, uh, James Mosley, uh, Alan Greenfield. And they would lament, you know, the, we just don't have the, uh, the young people coming into this field that really seem to have a grasp on it. Well, here's Zelia talking about the super spectrum. I mean, I was, I was blown away. So, uh, this has just been an absolute uh, blast, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Certainly. You're always welcome, both of you. And as far as for me, yeah, Keel got to me really young. Um, so it kind of, he he shaped my ideas of, of what this phenomena could be, maybe. Because again, he didn't know either. Um, and uh it did give me contexts for things that I experienced from a very young age. So it helped me look at it without being too terribly afraid, you know, until things are shaking trees out in the woods, just a few feet from my house and things like that. Then it was, you know, it was kind of like, you know, I don't even think John would walk into those woods, you know, I'm not gonna, not gonna do that. Uh, but you know, that's, I mean, that's why I, named the podcast after Keel because uh, as he said, within a hundred miles of you, somebody has seen a monster. Another person has seen a UFO and another person has experienced a ghost or poltergeist phenomena in their house. And next week it may not be you who experiences it, but it might be your cousin because these things happen more and more often than we are led to believe. So that's, that's what I mean by six degrees of John Keel. It's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but weirder. There's, there's always somebody somewhere nearby you who has experienced something strange. Thank you all for being here with me tonight and talking all about our favorite person. 
Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you.